0: Okay, we're going to talk today about the person of Christ, truly God and truly man. And let's be honest about it. Sometimes when we talk about something like this, we might think, well, this is sort of abstract stuff. Actually, this is the core of the good news of Jesus. This is really the core uh, of of the good news of Jesus. So uh, this is not abstract theology. Let's start out, first of all, with, uh, we call this topic Christology. Christology does two aspects to it. We're going to focus on one is basically, who is Jesus? You know, that that question keeps coming up in the Gospels. Who is he? You know, it's the main question in Mark. Who is this? What's going on? Who is this? And the second thing is, what did Christ do? Now, technically, theology, we often use the term broadly, is broken down into small components. And actually, theology is the study of God himself. This is called economy within theology. It means what God does is economy. Who God is is theology. So Christology has both aspects. It's who is Jesus or who is the Christ? Who is Christ? And then what did he do? Okay, that's Christology. That's what we're going to talk about. And this is really important. Most people, if you said, people who aren't, don't know the gospel, you know, are still waiting for us to come to them with the good news, is most people, you ask them, what is this about Jesus? They say, well, the first thing we all know, everybody knows he's this great teacher. He had these wonderful things. And maybe those Christians got off and started kicking him upstairs and making him God. But everyone normally thinks of Jesus' primary. And that maybe Christians later on sort of, you know, put a lot of frosting on that cake. You understand historically, it's completely the opposite. The core message, if you look at Acts of the Apostles and all the sermons and things, do you notice when you look at the earliest writings in the New Testament are the epistles? Jesus isn't quoted. He's quoted twice in the New Testament, maybe three times as an argument. Outside of, you know, when we talk about Acts of the Apostles and the epistles, he's only quoted twice, maybe three times. And they didn't have gospels then. I mean, you know, so clearly people didn't think of Jesus primarily as a teacher. So when people talked about Jesus, what did they say? The important thing is who he is. He is two things he was the son of David, the promised Messiah to Israel, and he was the son of God. The son of David and the son of God. That was the first part of the message. So why is that important to us? You know, that's nice, well, son of David, son of God. What did he do? And the idea with what he did is he died for our sins and he rose and by dying for our sins and rising, he opened to us the gates of eternal life. Freedom from sin and eternal life. That's always the gospel. Read in Paul, read any, that's always the good news. Jesus died for us, he rose. That's why the, the core of the whole gospel is the resurrection. You know, he rose for us. This, uh, so Jesus, who he is, the son of David and the son of God, okay? And then we have, okay, okay and uh, the Messiah. And what did Jesus do? He died for our sins, and he rose from the dead. Now, let me go back here a second with, these, uh, with, this, with this core message, rather. Okay, another thing is this is why Jesus em- emphasizes the two things about him. There's one part where Jesus talks about his messianic claim. Let me tell you two things that you might not have understood before in the Gospels. Okay, one of them is this. They say, what authority you have for doing this? We can tell you why. We're high priests. You know, we have the temple. We, We went to the right schools. We have the right thing. Who are you? And he said, well, I'll ask you a question first. And he quoted Psalm 110. Psalm 110 is a psalm that everybody agreed referred to the Messiah. Everyone agreed on that. That wasn't, you know, the point. So he said, I'll ask you this. We know David, you know, that is, is, is the Messiah is David's son. Well, David wrote the psalm that said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit in my right hand. And we know it's referring to the Messiah. Why would David call him Lord? Now, if you don't understand something about the ancient world, no matter how great and famous you became, you could never outrank your father. That's what we call patriarchal. You could never outrank your father. So he's saying, how is it that David, if he's, if he's, if he's uh, rather, how can, how can the son of man, the Messiah, if he's David's son, how in the world, can, why would he be calling his own son Lord? And the answer to this is, what was the messianic promise? He says to David, I'm going to raise up for you this son. He's going to be king of kings and all, you know, he's going to bring deliverance. And guess what? He will be my son too. <clears throat> it says, I will make him my son. So even Jesus emphasized those two aspects of it. You know, uh, that he's son of David and, you know, and son of God. The Messiah is that combination. He's son of David and son of God. OK, now, the uh, next thing is a deepening appreciation. So what happens here is the do- gospels are written decades later. And so people began asking, we know and notice the gospels still spend typically at least one third of the gospel of a gospel that's devoted to the last days of Jesus, his last hours. Because why? Because the whole story is his death and resurrection. However, later on, the first gospel written is Mark, and people began asking, "Well, what did he do before that?" I mean, he was 33 years old, and so they said, "Well, clearly, so the first gospel brings it back to he's the Messiah, right?" Well, when when does he become the Messiah? And he becomes, at his baptism is when he receives the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the public declaration that he is the Messiah. So that's why Mark's Gospel starts with him at his baptism, which is the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Remember, we said the Messiah is the anointed one. Well, that's where you see him anointed with the Holy Spirit. So that's why Mark's Gospel starts with, well, let's start with Jesus' baptism. Okay, he starts there, the baptism of Jesus. By the way, for theology, just so you know, this is a footnote for people who are very careful theologians. Jesus is always the Messiah from the moment of his conception. However, it's like this. In the Middle Ages, if you were the crown prince and your dad died, they would say, long live the king. The king is dead, long live the king. Meaning, now that your dad's dead, you're automatically king. However, you still had a coronation. The coronation was the public declaration to the world that this is indeed, we recognize this is the king. So Jesus was theologically always the Messiah, but at his anointing with the Holy Spirit was like his coronation, because you didn't put a crown on the head for a king of Israel, you you anointed him with oil. So he's anointed publicly with the Holy Spirit, the dove that comes down on him. So that's why Mark starts his gospel, and that's where we have Jesus' teachings, his miracles and his teachings. And notice that Mark's gospel overwhelmingly focuses on what Jesus did. His miracles and things. The teachings are, you don't find much of that in Mark. It's normally, he's talking about Jesus' actions. We then go, uh, and we have the link to the Old Testament. It starts with John is at the baptism. We have Matthew and Luke are the next two Gospels. And they say, wait a second, he was 30 years old when he was baptized. Now, that's a long time in the ancient world. I mean, (laughs) mean, you're certainly a full-fledged man. I mean, they began adult life much, much earlier than we did. So they say, what was he doing until he was 30? You know, what's going on here? And that's why they move it back to, wait a second. The miracle of Jesus doesn't begin somehow at his baptism, his public declaration as the Messiah. He, was, he had a conception like no one else. Jesus is conce—is his father is God. He, there is no other father to Jesus. This is not a figure of speech, because we often know kings of Israel were sons of God in the sense of like adoptive, you know, I take you to be my son. <clears throat> it's sort of a figure of speech. You're like a son to me. Okay. But in this case we're saying literally Jesus is the son of God. He has no earthly father. It's not just, yeah, you have an earthly father, but you're really God's son, too, like us. We have earthly fathers, but we're adopted. He's saying, no, Jesus has no earthly father. He really is literally the son of God. So that's the story of Matthew and uh, Matthew and Luke. And then the other one says, "Wait a second. Are we saying that uh, the that that uh God can't change. Are we saying God was inexistent before Jesus and Nazareth? No. They're saying, actually, John's Gospel Jesus, the Christ, has always been here. The eternally begotten Son of God didn't start life in Nazareth, or in Bethlehem, rather. So in John's Gospel, he goes said, no, no, actually, in the very beginning, there's never a time without him. In the beginning was the Word. He's already there. He's not, Christ. the Word, the Word was God. The Word was with God. The Word was God. So these are the order of the Gospels. And you see, (coughs) so the uh, first essential thing is who is Jesus? What did he do? The second Gospel says, well, clearly, let's look at his entire career as the Messiah, which starts from, (coughs) which is going to start from his, uh, (coughs) excuse me. If anyone had water, that would be really, really nice. Okay, Uh, if anyone had, um, we start from, from his career. Then we have, wait a second. Part of who he is, is he's not another Jewish teacher. He's not someone really close to God who has a special relationship with God. He, God is literally his father. And finally, we say, wait a second, it's not like the second, he actually goes through all time. Christ has always been, he's the eternally begotten son of the father. So we see that's the natural progression that we see in the gospels. So we might, call, we might call Jesus the twice-born. He's born twice. The Christ, I shouldn't say Jesus, thank you so much. Sorry, B, old age is not for the fated heart. Okay. Does <laughs> that makes sense to you? So first of all, the, the, in the Trinity, and we'll talk about that next time, God willing, that I'm with you, is we're going to say, before all time, the Father uh, begat the Son. So we're saying the eternally begotten Son of God, as John's Gospel tells us, he was in the beginning with God. He was God, always true. Okay, but also, Jesus of Nazareth didn't exist 2,500 years ago. He was born, I mean, born, he started out. There was a time before, there was never a time before the Christ, the the eternally begotten Son of God. But there was a time before Jesus of Nazareth. He was, he's a historical person who was born probably about 7 B.C. He was born, as ironic as that seems, <coughs> uh, he, he was born in time, and he has a real human mother. So it's an important thing to understand here, too. Sometimes people think as Jesus, like Mary was like a, um, like, uh, what do they call it, a surrogate mother. You know, that you know, Jesus sort of, you know, he's popped in there, but he doesn't actually have a human mother DNA, that kind of thing. No, the critical thing in the Gospels, it's Mary is truly his physical human mother. That's why he's a real human being. It's not like he's a God who sort of looks like a human being. He is on his Let's put it, he's human on his mother's side. But really, as a matter of fact, if you look at the Greek, when it talks about normally how people are conceived, the way they describe he's born of the Virgin Mary, which is not the normal Greek way to say it, meaning it's actually of her substance. You know, his humanity comes from the substance of his human mother. He can't get that from his father. Okay, so he's twice born. He's eternally begotten of the Father before all time. That's the Christ. But Jesus is very much born in time. Oui, yes? So, uh, with the Gospel of Mark in the first reading, was this still being worked out when he was
1: writing his Gospel? Like, were people unsure about this? Is
0: that why he like, didn't address it? Or, like, if, if this, like, if Mark was sure of this, Yeah. Well, Mark this probably has to do with Mark's audience. Also, the church gradually, the more we keep meditating on the mystery of Jesus as we keep going farther and farther back as we're working it out. But also, Mark writes to Romans. I a lot of way you can show that in his gospel. It's first of it's Latinisms. You know what Latinism is? It is what we mean by that. If you, uh, most Americans are monolingual. So it's like this. When you speak another language, often what you'll do is you'll translate something that makes grammatical sense, but it's not the way a native speaker would say it. For example, in French, the way you say I need something is literally, in English, I have need of something. So if I said I have need of a bottle of water, you would understand me, but you say, boy, that's a strange way to say it. And we have a number in the Greek, of the Mark's written in Greek, in the Greek of, the, of Mark's Gospel, we have Latinisms. We have things clearly only a Roman would say. And writing Greek, he translated them into Greek. <laughs> and also, his whole emphasis, he doesn't care much about Old Testament quotations, because who cared if you're a Roman? That, didn't, that wasn't very impressive to you. Uh, yeah, that's why we have so much emphasis on, on that. So I think it's, has a part of it has to do with his audience. And we'll actually talk about the four Gospels. I can't wait, that's really, really fun. We'll talk about the four Gospels in a separate thing. We will, together, we will all talk about that. But I think that's a big thing. But also, the questions became more and more as they moved on and they meditated more and more on Jesus. People, the more you know someone, the more you want more information about them. You start thinking, gee, I, I wonder, you start asking questions you haven't asked before. Okay. Um, let's see here, we have, now, since Christ was eternally begotten of the Father, we have, that's why we say that Christ, by the way, didn't begin his career at the, at the Jordan River. One teaching that we have from Jesus himself is uh, he goes back on the very night of Easter and goes back and shows all the things in the scripture concerning himself. So Christ is at work from the very beginning throughout the history of Israel, actually from creation. Now, we say that the, all three members of the Trinity are present in creation. Because we have the Father, obviously the Lord, that created the heavens and the earth. And we also have, we know, uh, we have the Holy Spirit as the Spirit hovered on the face of the waters. But where's the Son? The Son is called the Word. the Word, right? How does God create everything in the first chapter of Genesis? God said. God said. So that's why, by the way, that's where the tradition comes, everything was created through him everyone takes that as a given. You might say, where, they, where does it say that? they are saying, well, look at, the, look at the text. The way God creates is by saying, and Jesus is the word of God. Okay, so Christ is active in creation. That's why John says, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. Because if you look at Genesis 1, that's how creation. Nothing is made with, except through Jesus. So Not Jesus, I should say through Christ, through Christ. The second person, the Trinity. The next thing, he's active in the story of Israel. All drank, this is in 1 Corinthians, all drank from the same spiritual drink. They drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. You know, we're saying that Christ was actually present. We actually see him. He's the fourth person in the fire. We see Christ, you know, at, at various points in the Old Testament. He's really active. By the way, that's sort of a mystery if you don't know this, is if you know the Hebrew text, The Old Testament is very different from the New Testament. The New Testament Greek has different levels. Some is classical, some is on the street, but it's very readable in the sense it's all written in the same time period. The Old Testament covers hundreds of years, and you know how, think of your English speakers, imagine reading Beowulf and stuff, doesn't look like, you know, it's hard to read, or reading uh, Chaucer can be really hard, even for a a person who speaks perfect English. Well, some of the Old Testament text is pretty corrupt. We corrupt mean in the sense that it's really, you know, it's pretty mysterious sometimes what a sentence means. You have to do the best you can. Well, there's a sentence that the rabbis had trouble with, and they actually came out with the idea that the rock, when he strikes the rock, that it's the same rock that follows them. I'll, I won't bother you t- talking about the Hebrew, and so that's where this comes. You saying, "What do you mean the rock followed them?" They had the idea that there's a rock that actually sort of went along with them. So if you didn't know that, you say, "What well, the rock that followed them?" That's the rabbinic. He's just referring to the rabbinic, rabbinic tradition. Okay, but he is saying it's Christ. He says that was Christ. Christ was present throughout the story of Israel. Okay, Uh, Another thing is Christ was active in the prophets because the Holy Spirit is the spirit of Christ. He proceeds from the Father through the Son. So we have concerning him, this is from 1 Peter, this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating. So even the prophecies of Christ were Christ's own spirit revealing them. So Christ is at work in the prophets. It's the spirit of Christ that, that reveals. We'll talk later when we talk about Trinitarian theology of what we call one operation, that anything one person of the Trinity does, everyone does, is involved in in one way or another. Okay. But it continues. We have, okay, what happened when Jesus was conceived? This is really important because people often get this wrong in practice. Okay. It says the eternal word of God, it's been in existence forever. God, uh, part of God Himself, okay, uh, became a true flesh and blood human being. The Word became flesh. And that's where we get incarnation. Carnus is the Latin word for flesh, you know, meat. Flesh is carnus. So incarnatio means some, making something into, into meat, you know, the in-meatment. <laughs> that's what it means. You're turning into, turning into flesh. Okay, now here's the critical thing people get wrong. He assumed our humanity. Let me tell you this, is sometimes what we mean when we talk about became in English, in any, almost any language, same in French, the word became can mean that basically, to be, if you become something, you're no longer what you were. For example, if you, your kids go away from home, I'm an old guy, and you no longer need all the bedrooms, you're gonna turn one into a study, you would say you know, that the bedroom became a study. That means it's no longer a bedroom. You know, often we think becomes means you were this, but now you're no longer that because you're this. We often think one means abandoning the other. That's not what happened. What happens in the, in the birth of Jesus, he assumes our humanity. It's like this, using that analogy. It's not like converting a room. We call that metamorphosis, change that involves you're no longer what you were. You know, a man is no longer a boy. He was a boy, but he turns into a man. By becoming a man, he ceases to be a boy. And so in this case God never changes. So it's like this, it's like building an addition to the house. All the rooms that are there are just the same, but what you've done is you've added an extra room and it's now a, it's now an integral part of the house. It's as much a part of the house as anything else. That's what we mean by assuming. So it's not like uh we sometimes have the idea that Jesus is God or the Christ is God and he comes down and does sort of like a internship thing. He becomes a human being for a while. And he gets better, you know. He finishes an internship, he goes back to being God again. But that's very often in popular thing, what people think about Jesus somehow. You know, there was God, he came down here, sort of played around with us, and then went back home and was God again. The truth of the incarnation is glorious, is he actually took on and became an integral part of who he is. It can never change. He will never change. He is truly God and truly man. And not just during his lifetime, he remains so forever, right now. He's truly man at the right hand of God. He's truly God and truly man. That's, um, we call this the hypostatic union. Why it is, is basically, we'll talk about, it, about the Trinity, is we talk the three persons of the Trinity, they call, uh, in Greek, we call hypostases. And that means, well, we could say person in English, the three persons of the Trinity, and the second person of the Trinity, the Son. Basically puts on that extra room, actually it takes humanity in addition to his divinity. He doesn't switch nothing changes at all in his divinity, is exactly what he was after he was before. However, in addition to being that, now in it's, it's not like a tent in the backyard, it's really in addition to the house, it's now an integral part of the house. He's now also a human being. Okay. That's called the hypostatic union. So what does it mean? He's fully human. And very often, people are reticent about this. They, they think it's not done something. No, I mean, he was really like us. I mean, the real thing, he's an actual flesh. Not someone, you know, sort of like a special style, you know. The real thing, he's like us. So what does that mean? First of all, he was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh, yet without sin. Here's so we can understand the theology is what we mean. One of the trouble with Adam is after he sinned, we also suffer from this problem. We, have, we call it original sin. It means disordered affections. It basically means that we, can, we are Adam, it, Adam could have said yes. He didn't have to say no to God. He could have said yes to God. Now, after Adam sin, nobody could do that. None of us, no matter how hard we try, could avoid sin. You know, somewhere we're going to sin. Everybody sins. You know, we've got the disease. It's like a virus. We've got it. There's no getting out of it. And viruses are permanent. You never lose them. They just don't manifest, but they're, they're forever. So you know, your body controls them, but they never go away. You know, viruses forever. And so what happens here is we as human beings are in a position that we are incapable of doing the right thing. We can do less of the wrong thing, but we can't do the right thing. It's not possible. Jesus does not suffer from the original sin. He doesn't have disordered affections. However, he, what he did do, unlike Adam, is part of what happened with original sin is we suddenly are in a position of things that were true, are true now we never had. Human suffering and death became possible, right? There was no suffering or death before sin. With sin now, regular people, you know, in addition to a disordered affections, suffer and die. Jesus has all the symptoms of sin. I mean, he really suffers. He can die, but he doesn't have sin itself. He doesn't have, he has the symptoms, not the virus. If he had the virus, he'd be in the same position we are as a human being. How could he obey where we can't? So he had to be human, because Adam was human, right? But think again, Adam sinned before he had original sin. So it's possible for someone with no sin to sin, that's what Adam and Eve did. So he's like them, except he actually makes it harder. It's like they're in a race. Adam goes, he has nothing on his feet. Christ, when he goes into the race, he actually is wearing weights on his, about his feet. He's taking, in addition to being like Adam, he's free, but unlike Adam, he has to take all the penalties of sin. He has to have all the suffering all the pain, we're gonna talk about what that means, you know, and death. So he's, talk about that, he's a much harder, they're giving, uh, he's really a much harder situation than Adam ever was. But he is not himself subject to original sin. That's important. When he said make make it like like sin, it means he suffers the symptoms of sin. He suffered all the the byproducts of sin, but not sin itself. He is not sin like we are. You know, he is is, uh, without sin. Now, what are the practical effects of his humanity? Let's really emphasize, because people really get embarrassed about this. They think they're not being respectful. First of all, he is really hungry and thirsty. I mean, the basic needs. When Jesus was in the desert, sat after 40 years of fasting, he said, he was hungry. It wasn't a theoretical thing. I mean, you know what it means to be really, really hungry. He was thirsty. On the cross, it wasn't just there's a spiritual dimension, but he actually, you know, he was bleeding to death. And if you ever do that again, uh, <laughs> uh, I almost bled to death. But what I've got to tell you is you get very thirsty if, you, if you're water, you, know, you you're very, you're very thirsty. He was thirsty because he's bleeding to death. That's part of your part. He's bleeding. Okay. Now, he had to actually learn human skills. He didn't have special things. I bet at the house in Nazareth, we could go back in a time machine. We would find some corner of the house in Nazareth. We'd see this table that looks pretty rotten. I mean, it's, it's wobbly, et cetera, and saying, What's Barry, what's the deal about the table? He said, well, Jesus wasn't really that great a carpenter. Uh, <laughs> meaning he had to learn carpentry like anyone else. Human skills, he had no special advantage. He only knew the foreign language, the language he was born with or anything he learned. He had no advantages, he had to learn everything. That's why we say that he had to grow in wisdom and in stature. So he didn't have any advantages. He's not like this this golden child who somehow has everything we'd want to do. No, he has no advantages we don't have. Everything he had, he had to learn. You know, as far as human things, all the human things we have to do, he had to learn. He couldn't speak Latin. Why? Because he never learned. I assume he never learned Latin, so he couldn't speak it. Okay. Now, he experienced real suffering, being in agony. Not the semblance, real suffering, agony in the garden. Says he is so scared, he he sweat blood. He's so frightened. Okay. He truly died. I mean, he, you know, a lot of people we talk, about, I, I hate when people talk about near-death experiences. To me, the point is, uh, or you know, death means you don't come back. <laughs> Except the resurrection. He did the real thing, I mean, he went over the cliff. He truly died, which is the separation of soul and body. The real thing. The next thing we have is, he was subject to temptation. Now, some of us think Jesus, this is easy. He had one big temptation to start his career, and then he had that behind him. And I don't know about you, but for me, temptation is simply a way of life. No matter how long you're walking with the Lord, it's an ongoing, it'll be the rest of our lives. And we think, well, that must be a charmed existence. You do the temptation thing once. No, it says he is tempted in every way as we are. Every way. I believe the scriptures mean what they say. So Christ didn't have a charmed existence. He really knew temptation as we do. Okay. Ah, he was truly one of us. Notice it says in Hebrews, it says he he who sanctifies, meaning Jesus, and those who are sanctified have one source, saying Jesus is a true human being. And it says because of that, he says he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Saying Jesus doesn't ashamed to call us brothers because we really are his brothers and his sisters. We're really his siblings. We're human beings. He's a human being as much as we are. It's the real thing. He just doesn't sympathize with us. He's the real thing. And he remains human even now, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. He says, even now, if the Father, there's a human being mediating. That's why we celebrate the Feast of the Ascension. I want you to think about that. We love Jesus. Why would we celebrate somebody going away forever? We celebrate the Ascension when Christ goes up and. the... Why, if you love something, you know, if people had a party because I was going away, I don't, not in the sense of we want to say goodbye to you, but where this is a cause for celebration, you'd say, whoa, I don't know how to take this, that you're so happy I'm going. The reason we celebrate this is because something happens. This is the triumph of humanity. It's saying for the first time, humanity being restored, a human being is sitting at the right hand of God. This is the triumph of humanity. A human being now sits at the right hand of God. You know, it's like people felt like when President Obama was elected, it really, there are these barriers you have and thought, this could never happen. you African American person, we can't go to those kind of places. It's never gonna happen. And how they feel, say, my word, he's in the highest possible position in the country. I didn't think it's this, wow, that changes everything. And people say human beings after the fall, we now have a human being at the highest possible place. You know, yeah, the right hand of God. That's why we celebrate the ascension. It's celebrating. This is the triumph of humanity. He's basically uh, represents all of us. I mean, a human being is now at the right hand of God. Okay. Uh, also, we say Cuban uh, now. Okay, but uh, but he's of course in his resurrection body. Now both hands. Christ is really both fully God and fully human. He's really, fully and completely the eternally begotten Son of God. He is God. I am. That's why we have the seven I am statements in John's Gospel. He has dual citizenship. <laughs> He's truly a citizen of heaven and a citizen of earth. He's dual citizen. Now, I love how Hebrews pointed, God has now spoken differently. You see, God has always spoken throughout the, you know, he spoke uh, in the garden to Adam. He spoke to our father Abraham, right? He's spoken throughout history to us. So what's special? He said, God, is. it says here in Hebrews, long ago and in many times, in many ways, God's spoken to our fathers by the prophets. He's had visions. He's had words he's given. He, God has often spoken to people. What's different now? But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. What's the big deal here? And I'm going to show you in a beautiful image that we have called the deesis. It's the, you'll see it in every orthodox church. I'll show you an example in a minute. It's like this. You know, imagine someone that, you know, that you have, you've talked to on the phone a lot, maybe a relative you've talked to, but you've never actually met the person, in person. Well, what actually happens in the Old Testament is God gives his words to other people and they tell us what he said. So it's the word of God to us, but we never have it directly. Here, the word of God, God himself appears in person. So we go instead of the word of the Lord came to Isaiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, it's the word of the Lord came to us, you know, directly to us. And this is why every Orthodox church has this this icon. And notice we have Mary on one side and John the Baptist on the other. I call it the holy handoff because what really is happening is saying, we go from the Old Testament where God speaks, but he speaks through his prophets and things, which is glorious, but he says, now we have the word of God in, Mary represents the incarnation, the word of God in person. And that's the why Jesus says, you know, there's never been a greater prophet than John the Baptist among everyone born. But I'm telling you, the least in the kingdom of heaven is a better situation than he's in. Why? Because we actually, you know, meet the word face to face. Okay. Now, why incarnation? Uh, yes, please. Do you want to come up here to the mic? I'd be, yeah, yes. Uh, you can start lounge singing, though. If I have a mic like that, I'm going to go feelings. No. <laughs>
1: I might stay back here still. OK. So um, this is kind of a question that I've been trying to formulate. So it's a little, it will require us going a little bit back Mm -hmm. to things you've already said. But um, when you were describing hypostatic union and kind of all these um, very Greek terms, to me, I always feel like this is an attempt of the church to make sense of what the Bible says in the language and philosophical categories of the time, which happened to be Greek, but could have been anything else. And I'm wondering, um, because of that contingency, whether there's a way of articulating the person of Jesus Christ and the natures and all this other Greek kind of way of speaking, but in a way that's more in American philosophical categories or in a way that kind of speaks more to, in our own cultural terms, uh, rather than using words that are literally Greek to people. Um, So I, I mean, I can see the value of using a Greek word and then just trying to explain it Um, But I'm just wondering if there's another way of going about it and if that's even advisable or good. I don't know.
0: Did everybody hear the question? Now, it's really true that one of the things that uh, we have in theology has always been a problem, is a challenge, is that... uh, we, when we describe things, we naturally come, like the very language you speak. If you're, if you're bilingual, believe me, I'll tell you, that you know right away that how you say something, translation is more just words. There's a whole feel to words, a history to them, et cetera. You know, it affects you, you know, uh, what happens here. And so the question is, we used, we, there are sort of categories of how people think, and we tend to put things in those categories to explain. And so, in the church, originally, we tended to be adre- uh, In the early church, we tended to be attracted to Platonic philosophy, seemed as, as consistent with, with the Christian views. Where Aristotle was much too rationalist for us. And trouble with, we love the morals of the Stoics, but they don't believe in personal salvation. So, we tended, when we had to describe to outsiders in language they'd understand, we'd use those terms. We then moved to Neoplatonism, and Plato had to keep up. And eventually, they rediscovered Aristotle suddenly, you know, in, in later in the Middle Ages. Uh, with Anselm and the like, you know, when it comes to us, and then we use those categories. So it's true that there's categorization. But the, and the important thing is the facts. I mean, as long as we describe those facts, that Jesus is truly God, that, that, that something that we can't change is that he truly remains God but takes on humanity. That's, that's not a question, that's, that's what the Bible's teaching us. The question is, we use these terms as shorthand, like in law, we have certain terms that we use as technical terms exactly because we don't use them as common terms. They're called terms of art in law. Because otherwise, it could lead to confusion because words come with a lot of baggage around them. Remember, you know, that's what our, for example, one of the troubles we said about the word become is in regular English or regular French, the word become often means cease to be what you were, metamorphosis in Greek, and that would be misunderstanding. So instead of simply saying, why would you say the word became flesh, because it could really be misunderstood that Jesus was no longer God. And so hypostatic union was simply a shorthand, and it was meant to be sort of an odd term, because there'd be no chance that it would ever be confused with common language. So the advantage of, of legal terminology, for example, I was thinking law we still use to this day, is you want terms that are unambiguous for people who are scholars studying them when we explain to people the best way to explain it is just say the scriptures what it teaches the scriptures simply say that's how I would do it like with sacrament I rarely use that term <coughs> when I'm talking to most people I'll talk about you know God gives us visible signs of what he's doing invisibly you know people understand that you know the gods at work and, so I think it's a better way to explain things to people but in your thing I think it's helpful for you to make sure you're on the right page that we understand among professionals we have certain terms just so we know precisely what we mean because the trouble is every word has baggage. And again, any of you who are bilinguals know, though it's so hard because of the baggage attached to words to just saying, well, you know, to a French speaker, an English speaker, there's other things that go with that word, you know, that you don't want to get into. I mean, it's really tough. We call them false friends. Uh, You They're words that sort of look the same, but they have very different baggage to them. So I say the advantage of those terms is I don't suggest for a minute you'd use those regular folks. But I think it's important that we thoroughly come to an understanding, and so when you read theology, you'll understand that this is like a legal term. It's meant to be, a, uh, to be different, so it cannot be mistaken with a common word. We choose special words like we do in law, special words, so they have precise meanings that are not subject to the normal change of language. Does that make any sense? So I agree with you. I don't, I, if, if I heard that something of you are in a Bible school telling people about hypostatic, union, would say, what are you thinking? You just need to tell people that the, the Word of God actually took on our humanity. That's the way to explain it. He took on, he remained God, but also became a human being. He's both. That's the way to explain it, it seems to me. I would worry about different philosophical categories, though, especially in modern philosophy. Uh, because in, I don't want to get off too much on this. I'd be happy to talk to you sometimes about this. But very often, you know, philosophies come with their own presumptions. And a lot of mo- modern philosophies come with fundamentally ideas that are fundamentally incompatible with the Christian worldview. That's why we originally rejected Aristotelianism. So the trouble of using their categories might accidentally presuppose things that we as Christians do not presuppose. So that's a danger of using modern philosophy. So it could be helpful to help describe things. If we find it helpful to describe it, but be very careful that we don't use a term in one sense that they're taking in another sense. Sometimes people try to get unity by using ambiguous terms. We sometimes actually do that in the 39 articles a few times. where We have terms that really could be u- could be, we call them polyvalent in linguistics. They have more than one meaning. We're playing on the fact that people can read different things into them within a certain category. Yes, OK? Now, why the incarnation? I'm going to start out with the first thing is to save, to save us and reconcile us with God. Why is that necessary? We're going to talk about that, and that's so important. We're going to explain that on another slide. Why do you have to become a human being? So we'll talk about that in another slide, but we're going to find out that was necessary. the second traditional reason that we could know God's love for us. And I've got to tell you, this is important. On the Easter Vigil, traditionally we have, a, we have an ancient it goes back to St. Ambrose. We have an ancient uh, song that we sang, you know called, uh, you know, "The exalted: Let the Rejoice O heavens and Earth," you know about Christ's resurrection." And it talks about Adam's sin as a, as a happy fault, a happy fault. Why would sin be a good thing? Happy means a good thing. How, how could sin possibly turn into a good thing? Here's the idea. You know, God says, we know that God loves us. He's told us he loves us. But what does it mean? I mean, You love your dog, you love your garden. You know, what does love mean in that case? And he, God loves everything he made. So obviously human beings are different. So if we said, well, gee, normally I'm an accountant, uh, but professionally. And I got to tell you, one thing we say, the cost of something is how much you have to pay for it, how much you have to give up to get it. That's the cost, that's its value, how much you have to pay for it, how much you have to give up to get it, okay, in a transaction. Well, the trouble with our creation is this. God didn't have to give up anything to create us. First of all, he, he's infinite, he's beyond all time, so he didn't even lose time. Okay, and he made us out of nothing, so he didn't have to give up anything. So as we would say in human transactions, there was no skin off his nose in the sense that if we we're human beings, saying, it didn't cost him anything, so that doesn't really prove much love in the sense, you know, per se, it's nice, but he created trees, too. What's special about us? So let me tell you this. I'm a father, and I'm not a, I'm not a particularly physically brave person. Uh, but I, you know, it's, I'm not the kind of person who would rush in to have horrible things done to them. You know, I can imagine, uh, you know, in a th- thing, I can imagine doing something, if I see a kid really in trouble, maybe losing my life or getting hurt to save the kid. I, I can imagine, I'd hope that would happen. Okay, but here's something I can't imagine in any circumstances. I can't imagine giving up my son to save someone else. That could not happen. I have three three sons. I can't imagine any situation. I might give up my life for somebody, but there's no way I'm giving up my son's life for somebody. Any parent knows what I'm talking about. And that's why John's Gospel said, Here's what the good, the good news, the famous John 3.16. Here's the good news. Now that Jesus died for me, it's that God, the Father, so loved the world he gave give up his only son. <clears throat> if you would give up your only son, you'll give up anything. That's the point. And so we're saying here that, that because God we saw what God was willing to do, the cost of our salvation, now I know God loves me. It's like this. Amazing. Imagine you, you uh, dudes here that you, you marry this beautiful woman and uh, she's a wonderful human being in every sense, perfect wife, and you're a jerk. You end up going off with having an affair, being unfaithful, etc. You're a jerk. And what happens is you find out, you, you turn away from your ways, and you come back, and what's amazing is not only is she forgiving, she says, I know you're cheating, but I'm loyal to you. I said, forever, for better, for worse. And you say, you mean you still love me? Yes, and you say, wow. I, th- I knew you loved, me. now I really know. I mean, if you would, despite that, still love me, whoa, that's more than I can understand. So one of the reasons that we have the salvation is now we can be sure. That's why Paul says, look, who, what are we worrying about? You know, the one who judges us has already given up his son for us. And the son is our defense attorney. What are you possibly worried about by a judgment? That makes sense to you. See. You know, the judge, is the, the judge has given up his own son for you. Why are you worried? The son himself is pleading your case in the heavenly court. You have nothing to worry about. So one of the reasons we have this so we can see how much God loves us. So he loves us more than a tree. Okay. Now, he's a model of holiness. You know, one of the things you need when you're a kid growing up, one of the hard things is you need, you need an g- example of good adults around you. Right? We imitate. You know, what does it look like? My father, a blessed memory, when I was getting married is I remember that uh, just before I got married my father came to see me, Stephen Okay, and he said, I want to say something to you. I said, oh no, please no, no, I said, I remember my heart saying, not a sex talk or something, oh no, no, please no. Uh, And what he said to me, no, I should know my dad better than that. You know what he said to me? This was beautiful. He said, always remember this. Love your wife because the greatest legacy you can leave your children is to show them what it looks like for a man to love a woman. It means that'll, their whole life will change. If they know what it looks like, they'll be able to have happy marriages and things. So I, isn't that beautiful? Said, that's what he told me. Said, that, that's all. Just remember, love your wife. The greatest legacy you can leave your children is to show them what it looks like, you know, for basically a couple to love one another. And so you have to see it. You can talk about it. You have to see it in action. And Jesus actually showed us what holiness looks like. When we see Jesus, so many, that's why so many people say, what would Jesus do? They really have a real feeling for that. When you read the Jesus of the Gospels, you know, I can't see Jesus doing that. I have a feeling of what this looks like. And also to share his divine nature with us. We call that theosis in Greek or deification in Latin. You remember, in Peter it says, we're gonna be participants in the divine nature. We don't become God, but we're actually gonna participate in the very life of God. I'll talk to you about, when we talk, we talk about the Trinity, we'll talk about what that means. Okay, now, the question is why was incarnation necessary for redemption? So here's the highlight, why did Jesus, first of all, if God wanted to tell us something, he didn't have to become a human being. You know, he could have just, he just could have been like a hologram, right? He could have just come and look like us and talked in our language. If it's just a matter of telling us stuff, he wouldn't have to come and be here. So why did he have to come? And this doctrine comes from a uh, word we call recapitulation. That comes from Saint Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers uh, in the third century. And he says it's like this. It's, it's recapitulation in plain English is what you call a do-over. The basic idea is Adam botched everything up for humanity. Right, he botched it up. And we have to have somebody who it. who does the same stuff but does it right, to sort of balance off things, justice, to balance things off. So here's the problem. What did Adam do? He basically, was disobedient to the point of death, right? Adam, that's what he, he was disobedient to the point of bringing death. So here's our challenge. Recapitulation means we'd have to do the opposite. But because Adam has fundamentally changed who we are, our ability because of sin, there's no human being who could ever be obedient perfectly, right? That's not possible. So we can't possibly be perfectly obedient. So we could never have a redo. No matter what human being, we could never have a redo. However, what about, what about God doing that for us? Well, wait a second. You know, God, what's God's name? I am. God is life itself, the very source of all life. There's only one thing that God can't do. Only one. Well, you say he can't do evil. No, that's, that's, that's make-believe. That's philosophically, by definition, evil are things that God doesn't do. If God did them, they wouldn't be evil. I mean, so that, the only meaningful thing God can't do is he can't die. God is life itself. God cannot die. So you see what our dilemma is. A human being can't be perfectly obedient. God Himself could do the obedience, but He can't do the death. So we have to have someone who somehow has God's ability, you know, but also humanity's fragility. He has to be both fragility. He has to have both. And so, the the way that problem is solved then with Christ incarnation or redemption he takes on our he takes on our humanity our mortality the one who's immortal takes on immortality <clears throat> basically the only the reason he became a human being is simply he had to be human to die any other thing there's no other way he had to become a mortal that's the essence of who we are he had to become someone subject to death to die That's the key reason, not to tell us wonderful teachings. He could have been a hologram and done that. You know, he could have done that. He he had to be a real in-person to suffer and die. There was no other way. This is why we have this wonderful saying in John's Gospel. It says, this Jesus right before he dies. He says to his disciples, he says, look, how can I pray? He says, ask God, let this hour pass, but this is the whole reason. He said, I came into the world was for this. So if everything else Jesus and if he didn't die, the whole thing is a waste of time. You know, the whole, the, the reason he came was to die, okay? And this is why, look at this traditional manger scene. In an Orthodox church, when you look at the icon of the nativity, I want you to notice two things that are really strange. See that icon there? First of all, notice that Joseph is nowhere in sight. He's way off there in a the left-hand corner. But he's nowhere near Mary because the idea is, we're trying to tell the truth, that uh, Jesus' only Father is God. But the second thing that's important is look at that crib. The crib is made to look like it's a, a, a it's not a crib, it's really a, uh, um, what do you say, um, like a manger. You know, you can have actually stone mangers and things where animals eat out of, etc. And He's in one of those. It looks like a sepulcher. And look at the baby wrappings. They look like he's wrapped up like someone who's dead. That's not accidental. That's the Eastern Orthodox way of telling us the spiritual truth. He came to die. Even at his birth, he's here for death. That's his mission. You see, we want to think that the the crucifixion was a tragic accident. The wrong plan. No, he came. That is his whole mission from the very beginning. His whole mission is takes on humanity so he can die for us. That is the mission. you guessed a I have a question? No. I thought that, okay. Now, a resurrection power. Okay. Let me tell you, what, where does resurrection come from? And that's very important to understanding. This is beautiful. Is Jesus is truly God and truly man, the one person. Jesus Christ is one, truly God and truly man. Now, human beings can die, but God cannot. So, I want you to think of a bonfire. You've all been to bonfires, right? In bonfires, what happens if you have a wind come through, it makes the bonfire bigger, right? The bonfire doesn't go out, air makes bonfires even bigger. What happens if you have a candle and the wind comes through? Out it goes. So, what happens in Christ's resurrection is basically this Imagine a candle next to the bonfire. Is a gust of just a little, some wind comes through and the handle's off, it's truly out. But if it's right next to the bonfire, inevitably the bonfire relights it. It can't stay out because it's next to a huge fire. You know, the flames are going to to relight it. That's what happens in Christ's resurrection. It's basically his humanity dies, but he can't stay dead because he's connected to divinity. And divinity relights. Uh, And that's sort of our promise. That's why look at this wonderful line from Paul. He says, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. He's saying this. He said, we already have the bonfire in us because when we're baptized, we receive the actual life of God. We receive the presence of God. Don't confuse the gifts of the Holy Spirit with the actual Holy Spirit himself. We receive the actual life. That's what we call regeneration. The actual life of God comes to dwell in us. And he's saying, you don't have to worry about pie in the sky. He says, "You already. how do I know I'm going to rise on the last day? Because I already right now have in me the God's spirit. That's the spirit. The very spirit that will raise me is already here. It's like saying, how do we know we're ever going to go to Europe and saying, look in your pocket. There's your ticket. Showing my age when we used to have tickets. But work with me here. Or look on your iPhone. There it is. You have the ticket already. Yeah, there's no doubt that this is not just talk. Someday we'll go, look in your iPhone. Right there is the paid ticket. There are all the hotel reservations. It's a sure thing. You're going. It's paid for. And he says, when we know the Holy Spirit is our proof that when we die, the same thing that happened to Jesus, our candle's going to go out, but that bonfire will relight it. And that's the story of our hope of, our hope of, of, of eternal life. And that's why Irenaeus, rather, said famously, God assumed our mortality so we could assume his immortality. God became mortal so we could become immortal." Now, errors to avoid. We want to uh, common errors. We we want to avoid dividing, uh, d- uh, d- diminishing one of Christ's two natures. So, typically, one thing we we would want to minimize the divinity of Christ. Uh, this happened a lot. We'll see in a moment. In the first in the first two centuries, uh, for reasonable, t- you know why? Frankly, the reason people tended to minimize Jesus's divinity wasn't they. Th- Here's what the problem was: is we think polytheism, the belief in multiple gods, isn't a very attractive thing to us. We think it seems seems to us it's obvious if there's a God, there's one God. In the ancient world, that was a tiny minority opinion, right? Everyone had a lot of gods. So the real fear we had was that people will take something and understand it as multiple gods. So when you talked about Jesus as being God and the Father being God, the great fear was that people would say, see, there are two gods. You're like us. You have multiple gods. And so originally, some of the temptation of people was to try to find some way that people wouldn't be misled. And it was well-intended, but came to sorry results. Okay, so we have, for example, um, we would have, Okay, we'd, um, later on, we'd have heresies tend to be the opposite. Once Christianity is fully established, we have such reverence for our Lord, that we really hated the idea of, like he's a human being. You know, the idea this guy had to eat or go to the bathroom is, you know, a little much to take. And so we wanted to basically make him sort of superhuman, you know, type of thing. And there's a tendency to try to diminish the human element is being unworthy. So you see, what well, those are going to be the two opposite poles. The real fact is he's truly God and he's truly man. Okay. Or we could misunderstand the relationship. So let's take a look at these. First of all, the denial of Christ's two natures. We'll talk more about this as we talk about the church councils. But the first person was Arius. And Arius said, yeah, he's the son of God, but you know, a son is not the father. They're different, right? They're, they have things in common. We'd say the same DNA, but they're not the same. So he said, you know, the son, and after, because the father's older. You have to be a father older before you have a son. And so he argued that, uh, that he was a creature. Christ was, you know, was a product of God rather than God himself. We would have something, adoptionism. A lot of people like the idea that at Christ's baptism, they took a human being, Jesus of Nazareth, who was just running around like a normal human being, and God sort of took control of him like a robot, God in a bot, you know, sort of took control of this guy, came upon him so he could do his thing, using Jesus of Nazareth sort of as a tool. God in a bod, okay? <laughs> uh, that he just, toward, here's Jesus minding his own business, you know, some carpenter on the way, and suddenly he goes down here and suddenly, no. That's called adoptionism, or uh, anthropism, which is you know, just the interesting Greeks are really uh, plain, uh, plain human we had Theodorus, uh, Theodotus rather, Byzantium, and Paul, Samasota. And then we had Docetism. And one thing that really bothered ancient people, that is unusual to us, is when they had their philosophical, like you talked about philosophy, one of the philosophical ideas about God was that God, if you were like Plato and believe there is such a thing as God, uh, like the God, one God, not all these gods, there's there's a God up there, he said God would have to be unchangeable and what we call impassable. What impassable means is philosophical. It means you couldn't experience suffering because suffering changes you, right? When you suffer, you're different than when you're not suffering. Anyone who's been seriously ill knows that means. Yeah, it's true. Okay. Uh, And so they're saying it scandalized them that Jesus dies on a cross. God can't suffer. God can't. So they had something called docetism from the Greek verb, which means to appear. That God is like a plague. God made it look like this was happening. But it wasn't really happening. You with me? But they tried. These were the things that they tried uh, early on, misunderstandings. Another thing was misunderstand the role. Okay, if, God, if Christ is both divine and human, well, how do those two relate if he's both? How do those relate? And some people, have Everybody seen a chain gang movie? Or even like Brother Where Out Thou, the, the Coen Brothers thing? There was a horrible time, but they used to have chain gangs, where people would, would two, put two people together with chains and they'd be working outside. But if you put a person with another prisoner, it's hard to really get away anywhere, because it's you're just, you're just like doing a sack race. And a lot of people, there are people who are called historians, we'll talk more about them, believe that Jesus of Nazareth and the second person of the Trinity were like a chain gang. They're really two separate people who are just sort of stuck together, but they're doing their own thing. Yeah, they're basically two different people doing their own thing. And so they really treated the, the natures of Christ, they were two different people, is getting to that point. Okay, separate the son of God for the son of Mary. Okay, the other side was to say, was to go the opposite direction. And say, well, he was truly God, but truly man, but here's what happened. Here's the comparison they used. What would happen if you put a drop of honey in the ocean? Well, honey would be completely absorbed. You wouldn't even taste the sweetness in the ocean, would you? And they say that's what his humanity is, compared to the divinity of God and humanity. When the two came together, the humanity was swallowed up. That's called monophysitism, you know, literally one nature, okay. And some people would say, well, he had two natures, but you know, when it comes to thinking, there was just one mind of God, or there's just one will of God. But they weren't willing to accept that we're talking about, uh, you know, these are all misunderstandings. So what's the proper understanding? or I'm sorry, before we come back to that, uh, okay, we'll come back to the proper understanding in a moment, is here's a question people often come up with. If Jesus is truly God and truly human, what did Jesus of Nazareth actually know? Did he know everything? And here's what the church's teaching has been, is Jesus knew everything connected with his mission. So to be truly human, he couldn't know, it, you know, so he didn't have any special knowledge of physics or anything else, but he knew everything. For example, he knew always that God was his father. By the way, that's the whole reason we have that story of Jesus in the temple in Luke's gospel. The only reason we have that story. Why? Because you're saying he's, 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 he's 12 years old. He goes up to the temple. He's 12 years old, and his mom comes and says, hey, your father and I have been looking for you three days. That's not, that guy's not my dad. He says. I'm in my father's house. So even as a 12-year-old, he understood that God is his father. So the point, he always knew his relationship to God. He always knew his mission from God, and he knew everything he needed to know for that mission. It's like I'm a CPA, and in internal controls, we have a rule, is people should have all the access and authority, and only the access and authority they need to do their job. You know, you can only get into the part of the computer system you need for your job, not just anything, that kind of thing. So Christ has everything he needs, like he can read the human heart, you know, that way, but he doesn't have special knowledge of other things. So he has, you know, um, also we have the thoughts of the heart. He knew the eternal plans. He knows the plan of salvation. So what is the proper understanding? At the end of the day, what do we know about Jesus, his two natures? He is, first of all, he has two separate natures. He is truly divine, he's truly God, but he's also truly a human being. Not an almost human being, or sort of looks a lot like a human being, the real thing. Truly God, and truly man. One substance with the Father, begotten of the Father before all ages. And he's uh, and truly human. He's begotten of the Virgin Mary, and he consists of a reasonable soul and body, and he's like us in all things except sin. Now the things we want to focus on here are the churches, uh, the, these two natures, is this is actually from a famous uh, document from, the, from Chalcedon, or Chalcedon rather, that says, the two natures are without confusion, that is to say they remain intact, his divinity has not changed when he assumes, right? The house when we added a new room isn't changed, all the rooms in the house remain exactly what they were, we just have an additional room, so that's what we mean without confusion. You know, the house is separate from the addition. I mean, they're, they're, in that way, they're, they're distinct. Okay, without change. Again, nothing was changed by doing this. Without division, it's a single person. There are not two people, it's not a chain gang. There's one, that's how we say, by you might, why, why do we say in the creed, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ? There are not two Jesus, no, there's one Lord Jesus the Christ. It's a single person. Two natures but one person, there aren't, two Jesus, there aren't two Christ, there is one Christ, two natures, one Christ. And then without separation, there is for to say that uh, Mary isn't just bearing Jesus of Nazareth, you can't separate the two. To bear, to bear Jesus is to bear, Theotokos means God bearer, is to bear God, I mean Jesus is God, therefore if you bear Jesus you're bearing God, you're, you're carrying God. Okay. And the two natures aren't changed by the union. When they come together, it doesn't change either one of them. Jesus doesn't lose anything about his humanity, nor does uh, the human loses nothing but the divinity. the divinity. doesn't is not at all compromised by the humanity. So why is this really important? People say, why do we care about this stuff with Jesus? Here's why. It's really important to, to how we preach the gospel. You know, let's think about Adam, Adam's sin. You know, let's suppose we did have a perfect human being who actually, if that had been possible, a perfect human being who actually died freely uh, for us, a regular human being, no more, no less, who had never committed a sin, who said, if Adam, you know, I'll die for for everybody. You would say, well, wait a second. Paul actually talks about this in Romans. He says, um, I'll, I'll give you the quote in a second, but it's like this. He said, Adam, one man committed a sin. And that sin was so powerful, it would wreck the whole world. But the point is, Adam, I have to tell you this. Um, Adam's sin, uh, Adam is not the only one guilty here. You know, all of, I want to say, I was born with original sin. That's true. But, you know, I can't say I'm just a victim here. I've done plenty to help out. In my life, I have personally sinned. We've all sinned, It says, you know, like Adam, in the way that Adam has. So it's not like I'm just here, so it it wouldn't just be a matter of getting rid of Adam's sins. We'd have to get rid of the sins of the billions of people who've come after Adam. That's why Paul says, you know, Adam, you know, if if sin came to the whole world through one man, imagine after all of these sins, how could one person's death possibly cover up all these sins? At best, you could get a one for one. (laughs) How could that be done? And so it's his divinity that gives power to his death. He needed to be human to die. But it's only because he dies that his death is so powerful. It's divine. His divinity gives his death special power. If you're a human, at best we'd have a one for one trade, right? I die for you, okay, we're, we're even. But if billions of people have sinned, how could one person dying, even though how nice that person was, possibly make up for billions of sins? And you say, well, when that person is also God, it makes up for everything. It becomes infinite. So the importance is the power of his death comes from his divinity, okay? The ability to die comes from his humanity. And also, he has to be fully human, like we're saying. that Let me tell you something about the law you might not know. I'm a CPA, and when people are facing bankruptcy, you, the lawyers and CPAs tell them this. What you act, people think when you reach bankruptcy, that means you don't have to pay your debts. That's true, and it's not true. Here's what's, what you have to know about it you have to draw up a complete list of all of your debts because the theory is in law that people could challenge that now if something is not on that list it's not forgiven so if you forget a debt and you go into bankruptcy and they give you bankruptcy if it's not on the list you still owe the money so anything not on that list is still owed so believe me your CPA and your attorney are saying we've got to look everywhere if we forget anything you still you've got to get everything on here So the church fathers say it's like that with redemption. Anything Christ doesn't assume isn't healed. You know, so God, Christ has to be truly human or we're not really, it's like something being off that list. So everything he does, we have to assume in order for it to come. What has been assumed has not been healed. Now one thing we have, I love this, is we have a high priest, like it says in Hebrews, who truly understands this. And I think this is really important when we talk about the uh, problem of suffering. Um, you know, Christ being fully human, in the real sense, so instead of making, we often have the idea, let's face it, guys, that um, God is sort of like those rich guys, we think of him very often, who sit in these skyboxes during football games, and on a really bad day when it's like snowing and the, and, you know, the, the gridiron is just all messy and muddy and dirty, is we think he's like one of those rich guys up there, you know, holding drinks, the beautiful women serving them and saying, hey, try harder, I paid for this ticket. You know, he was saying, you know, I'm the one down here in the field running, you're not trying enough. And he just sort of sitting up there, you know, doing his thing. And we often get that idea that God is sort of watching us, testing us. And the actual thing is quite the opposite. God profoundly has experienced everything we've experienced. He's with us on the field. He's not up there to test. He's with us on the field. Now, by the way, theologically how that happens, if you don't know, remember Paul says, I said I rejoice in my sufferings because I'm completing in my sufferings what's lacking in the suffering of Christ's body, the the church. And he's saying this, if we're the body of Christ, it means, here's the beautiful thing, if something bad happens, if I have cancer, it means that I don't just have cancer. Being part of the body of Christ, Christ shares that with me. I'm not in this alone. Thus, remember Jesus, what does he say to Saul when uh, he converts Saul? He says, why are you persecuting me? Right, his body is really his body. So it really helps. Now, one of the things when you do ministry you'll find out, especially with serious things, is the hardest part sometimes when you get a really bad diagnosis. When you find out you're gonna die, you know, it's a real possibility. Here's what happens: it's really amazing. An hour before you see the doctor or something, you come in, and you're like everybody else, you have a life. And suddenly she puts on the screen, and there it is. You know, it doesn't look good, you know. Uh, <laughs> You know, well, here's what we can do, etc. And you feel so lonely. Here's why you feel lonely. I've said lonely is the term for it. Because just an hour ago, I had a life I was like everybody else. And just one hour later, I'm in this ca- class because no one understands. You say, what do you mean no one understands? Because when, an hour ago, I didn't understand. I f- knew it in my head, but I didn't know it in my heart. And so you really have this feeling no one really gets it. No one's ever faced it, does not get it. They want to get it, but they can't really get it. And the beautiful thing about Christ, we're going to find out, is Christ has experienced all those things personally in his humanity. He's already experienced them. And that can be wonderful knowing, but Jesus knows this place. That's why people often have support groups. The only person who could really understand this is someone who's been through it. And Christ, basically that way, is someone who can always turn to who knows real things. So let's talk about some of those things. He's faced every challenge. Christ was really poor. When he said the Son of Man has no light where to lay down his head, he meant that. I mean the Son of Man really did not have the basic comforts, the uh, earthly comforts and things that we have. He lacks social status, for a lot of that it really bothers us. You know, a lot of people have a big problem if they don't go to school is they feel everyone's gonna look at me as dumb because I don't have a degree or something. They're really doing because they don't want people to think you know they, it's part of your status. Jesus didn't remember that's why they said, Who are you to talk? Who gave you authority? He didn't go to seminary. You know, he didn't do any, you know, he didn't go to school at all. I mean, that went a professional training and things, is he had no social status. He wasn't a rabbi. I mean, he, they call him rabbi because it's the word for teacher, but he had no status in the community. He had no official authority conferred upon him. Okay. He was misunderstood. How do you like this? His whole family goes out because they think he's crazy. Now that's got to hurt. That's what it says right there. Here it is in Mark's Gospel. It says, and when his family heard this they went out to search it for him for they were saying he's out of his mind. That's really a comfort. Your family thinks you're crazy. Okay? How about opposition? People who couldn't agree about anything else could agree they didn't like Jesus. That's why sometimes it's meant to be funny. Whenever you mention the Pharisees and Sadducees in the same verse, these people couldn't stand each other. They didn't want to be in the same room, but suddenly they could amazingly come together to get Jesus. We have Herod and Pilate on the very day he's going to die. Remember, they said they didn't even speak to each other. Now they've become friends from that day forward. Boy, that must be nice to know. The one thing people can agree on is they don't like you. Okay, <laughs> he brings people together. Slander. You know what's really hard is when, it's bad enough when people knock us on stuff that we've done, but when you know things are untrue and they just throw the, that really hurts to know, come on already. He was slandered, false witnesses. Anxiety. Now here, These are, by the way, in the Middle Ages, these are the five sufferings of Christ, but these are really beautiful. Here's what he's talking about. One of the hard things is knowing something bad is going to happen and there's no getting out of it, but you're not there yet. That that kind of anxiety of waiting for it to hit. Jesus, the night before he's going to die, I'm going to be crucified tomorrow. That's excruciating. It's going to be terrible, and I've not even started yet. I've I've got a whole night to think about it. And so, a lot of times, again, when you have terrible diagnoses, you know, here's what's going to happen. They tell you how sick you're going to get from the treatment and stuff. You know, so, oh, gee, it's just horrible. thing. think, oh, he's been through that. He knows that anxiety. Uh, physical pain, not metaphorical pain, the real thing, physical pain, is he was whipped. And the whipping of Romans was meant to inflict maximum pain. They put little pieces of glass and metal you know, at the end of the whips, you know, tear off skin. Then they'd often throw vinegar on and stuff. I'm, it was an art form. Okay. So he knows real physical pain. Another thing, humiliation. You know, all of us have things that are really sacred to us and it really kills us if people mock them. Well, his thing, is his claim, his kingship, they put a crown of thorns, they make fun of the fact, oh, you're king, Let's see, here's the king, that kind of thing. Uh, it really can hit you, yeah, all of us have those things. My father, when I was young, uh, used to say, never, know, let them, never let them know when they get you. In the sense that you never know, let people know what you're sensitive about. Once they know, they'll go, keep going back. So what happens when that happens okay humiliation suffering you have to every mother knows this you know one thing when you when you suffer that can you know something bad when you're really hurt is you can sort of curl up almost in fetal position sort of make you feel a little bit better you know what happens like moms know this oh lord it doesn't matter how sick you are if you have kids you have to take care of them if you have tiny kids you have a baby you've got it doesn't matter how sick you are you're just going to have to get up and do it well when christ carries the cross Besides the anxiety, he's already been whipped, publicly humiliated everything. He now has to physically, he has to, he has to walk into it, you know, p- p- he has to push into it. That's hard to have to keep on going. You can't even have the, the peace to try to settle down and get your mind together. And finally, death itself. You know, I tell you, until you're, t- until you're told you might die, I mean nearby, not eventually, you don't know what it is. To look... I'm sorry, I didn't mean to keep this on. I apologize for that. Okay, But the point is here, it's really different when it's you, and it's now, when it's going to be soon. You're going to die in a, in a period of time. It's really, really scary. Christ didn't just get near. He actually went all the way. He not only looked over the cliff, he fell in. So is the beautiful thing. We have someone who loves us, who truly has experienced everything. No matter where we are, Christ has actually personally, as a human being, experienced these things. And that can be a tremendous comfort. Um, I found that a comfort in my life, knowing that you're not alone. There is someone who knows. The, so let's say the Athanasian Creed is, by the way, if you ever, when you're practicing for a theology exam or something, when it talks about Christology and it talks about Trinitarian, we have three Catholic creeds. The Apostles' Creed, we use a baptism. The Nicene Creed, we typically read on Sundays. And the other is called the Athanasian Creed. And this is where they decide to spell out every dot in tittle is on there. You know, every dot, every I, cross every T. It's a great way to summarize in real detail. And so he says, okay, what do we believe? He says, we believe that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man, meaning God of the substance of the Father and man of the substance of his mother. He's a human being because he has a human mother, Mary. He truly, he's God because he truly has God's very essence. Okay, the next thing he tells us, he's perfect God. Perfect, by the way, has a technical meaning. The word perfect, if, you understand, if you're a Latin speaker, you know, Greek is the same, by the way, is means something is done. Per means thoroughly, Some, it means complete, something that's complete. It means lacking nothing. That's what perfect means, lacking nothing. He is perfect, complete God and complete man. And as a human being, it says a reasonable soul in a human flesh subsisting, saying he's really human. The whole thing, not just his body, I mean, his mind, everything, his will, it's all human. Okay, it says, equal to the Father as far as being God, but inferior to the Father. When he says the Father is greater than I, he's talking in his humanity, his humanity is less than God. When he talks about I and the Father are one in his divinity, he's one with God. So every time we read in Scripture with something being inferior to the Father, it's referring to as a human being, like all of us, he said, you know, God is greater than I am but when it comes to his divinity, equal to the Father. Okay. And though he is God and man, they're not two, it's one, Christ. And he's one, not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, by God never changes. God doesn't become flesh in the sense of ceasing to be God. And, but by the assumption of the manhood into God. So again, he doesn't give up anything. He's the same God with no change. He's always been. Now he's added a room, right? He now is also, you know, he's also, a Human being. Okay. He's one altogether. There's no confusion. Even though, I put it this way the best way to look at this, he's, 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 um, he, he's, 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 they're distinct. His humanity and divinity, his two natures are distinct but inseparable. They are distinct, but they're inseparable. Okay. Oh, let's do our questions and then we're, uh, take any more questions you have and we'll be right at 10 30. Which of the following is true concerning Christ? Nate. Oh, that's the one person, two natures. Yes, one person, two natures. Wow, that is so good, yes. One person, two natures. Oh, by the way, look at your notes and things. My view is if you're not cheating, you're just not trying hard enough. Okay, don't, don't ever quote that, by the way. <laughs> but I'm encouraging you to, you look back or something, you have a question about something. Okay. What is the source of Jesus' humanity? What, Sir? B. What's that? B. You're not the source of Jesus' humanity. Huh? I'm calling on you. <laughs> Mary. Mary. OK, I thought you did me." And I said, no, uh... uh yeah. Oh God, got you. Gotcha. OK, B. B is in budget. OK. Christ's humanity was exactly the same as Adams prior to the fall. Yes. How is it different? Right is what changes. Adam. It's true that like Adam, he had the ability to say yes to God. We don't have that ability. We could never be perfect. Adam could have been perfect, you know, he, without sin. He may, he fell into sin. However, Adam wasn't subject. You know, he went with nothing going wrong. He was spoiled rotten, sort of like Job. You know, he had everything going for him. And here we're saying that um, he did agree to, to take on the symptoms of, the sin, of sin, meaning to say suffering and death. That's right. So the answer is false. Question four, it would be accurate to describe the incarnation as a type of metamorphosis. Yeah? False. It's, it's not a change. Right, it's not a change in the sense you cease to be one. It's a change in the sense that you know, you're different, but it, without changing what you were. You're, it's additional. It's additional rather subtractive. Fair enough? Okay, and I think this is our last, our last time to shine. Which statement best describes Jesus' humanity? Sir? Yeah, he was and is truly human, truly divine. Was and is. Now, I have uh, still a few minutes left before 1030. Any questions you'd like to ask on any of this, i welcome them. Again, this is really important because the tendency, people say, well, why don't we emphasize Jesus the teacher? You have to understand the heart of the gospel is who Jesus is and what he did. His teachings are only important because of that. Otherwise, there are a lot of teachers and he's the best, but that's not the point. The point of Jesus was not what he taught. The only reason what he taught is important is because who he is. That's the importance of who he is. And again, the whole understanding, if we don't think of Christ as being really a human being, then everything is just a fake. I mean, he's not really us. He doesn't understand us. He didn't understand temptation. If we don't take him as truly God, uh, none of this makes sense. And He is truly God. And that's why God giving of himself. God the Father giving himself in, in the Son. Yes? Uh,
1: so.
0: Here comes the mic. It's coming here.
1: Um, so before the incarnation, yes, Christ was not Jesus of Nazareth. Yes, correct. So how are we to, or is there like a, a common understanding in the church of like what the substance of Christ was before the incarnation?
0: Yes, that's excellent. And we're going to talk about that in the very in detail in the very next section on the Trinity. That's no, that's profound because really we have to talk about in Trinitarian theology. We'll find out what was the essence. Of Jesus prior to his incarnation. Yeah. This is also clear in things. That's great. But again, our biggest challenge is this is people want to turn Jesus in. And I want you to understand the history of this. This is really important. People have this idea that it seems logical to them. You had this Jewish teacher who said nice things, and everyone thought followed him because of that, and then later on, over the centuries, Christians made up all this stuff. It's exactly the opposite. I mean, historically, exactly. At first, all Christians want to talk about is this, you know, Jesus dying, his divinity, and his his coming back from the dead. That's all they want to talk about. Later on, it's only in that light that they began to ask, well, let's talk about his teachings as well, now in the light of the gospel. So that's historically, they have it exactly backwards. (laughs) So it's not like we read this into Jesus. That's where it all started was from this. Okay, with that, I'm giving you five extra minutes off. Wow. Okay, use them wisely. Great to meet all you guys today. God bless.